Our first lesson is from Genesis 3, verses 8 to 13. Humanity's story begins with the first man and woman. Though created good, they disobey God, choosing deception in place of truth and shame in place of freedom. This first sin breaks their relationship with God, each other, and all creation in a fracture that is still felt today. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Here ends the first reading. The second lesson comes from Genesis chapter 22, verses 15 to 18. God shows his love for the creation that has turned away from him. Through the offspring of Abraham and Sarah, God brings into a holy people, Israel, who reveal God's character and purpose for the restoration of a broken world. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. Here ends the second reading. The third lesson is from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. God speaks through the prophet Isaiah, telling Israel of a promised Savior, the Messiah, or Anointed One, who will heal the fracture of sin, bringing justice, peace, and righteousness to the whole world. This Messiah will rule over the earth, setting all things right. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Natali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called 
Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end, on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Here ends the third reading. So I begin, let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge and thank you for your presence with us. We'd ask now that your word would rule over us, your spirit would teach us, and that you being known and glorified would be our first and our only concern. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. A few weeks ago, we had our Gospel Sunday, and the musical gifts of our community were brought together to pre-record an exceptional expression of our musical worship. But I have to admit that one of the songs we sung really grated on me. I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. Where down in my heart? Where down in my heart? And it grated on me because through the entire song, I'm thinking to myself, no, I don't. I don't have the joy down in my heart. We were looking down the barrel of another lockdown, the further loss of life and livelihood, grievously stepping away from real connection with one another, facing perhaps the darkest days of winter in the confines of four walls. I don't have the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. Far from it. In some ways, though, I was quite thankful that the song grated on me because it brought me to an increased awareness that I have located my joy in my circumstances. I don't think I'm alone in that, right? Most of us and our experience of joy is very much related to our circumstances. As the French philosopher Blaise Pascal put it, most of our decisions as human beings are motivated by and directed toward joy. I mean, think of it. How many of the decisions that we make of what to do, what not to do, who to be in relationship with, who not to be, how to spend our time, how to spend our money, are directed toward this pursuit of joy. We say as employees, I left the job, I wasn't happy. We say in relationship, we ended it, we weren't happy. We say as parents, I don't care what my kids do as long as they're happy. We all have our circumstantial if-onlys, if only it wasn't, if only I had, if only they didn't, then, then I'd be happy. We root our joy quite firmly in circumstance. Now, whenever I consider joy, the British writer and Oxford professor C.S. Lewis comes immediately to mind because his journey to faith in Christ came about in no small part due to his reflections on joy. In his book, Mere Christianity, Lewis gives great insight into how that came about. He said there are all sorts of things in this life that offer us joy, but never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of some exotic vacation 
or first take up a career that really excites us. And these are longings which no marriage, no vacation, no career can ever satisfy. Now, we're not talking about the worst possible marriages, vacations, career, but the best possible ones. There's something that we grasped at in that first moment of longing, which just fades away in reality. I think all of us can relate to this feeling, right? The things we look to to give us joy fail to give us what we expected. Something's missing. Something's evaded us. Now, if we come to that realization, Lewis said, there are three ways we often respond. First, we blame, in our disappointment, the thing itself. Oh, if I just had a different spouse, took a different vacation, had a different job. And so we move from relationship to relationship, vacation to vacation, job to job, always thinking that the next one is going to be the real thing. Our second response is often cynicism. This yearning for joy, we say, well, that's for the young and idealistic. I just need to grow up and face reality. And we learn to push down that yearning that we have for something more. And then a third response, the one Lewis himself took, was to conclude that we're not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exist. Where there's hunger, there's food. Where there's thirst, there's water. Where there's sexual desire, there's sex. But he says, if we find in ourselves a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most logical explanation is that we were made for something else. So what is that something else? And where can this universal longing for joy find its satisfaction? This Advent, we've been reflecting on what Jesus gives us in his coming, his Advent. And for at least the last couple of centuries, Christians have marked the things that Jesus brings us by lighting a candle every Sunday on an Advent wreath to acknowledge and give thanks for what Jesus gives us. There is first hope, then peace, and then this week, joy. Now, Isaiah 9 has so far been our central text for reflecting on these realities. As Isaiah speaks of a coming Messiah, a plan of salvation, a a glorious future. And Isaiah's promise includes joy. If you have your Bible handy, I'll invite you to turn to Isaiah 9. And picking up at verse 3, he says, You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Now, the original listeners are a nation facing famine, food insecurity, hastening the movement of wealth into fewer and fewer hands, an economic cliff looming. And Isaiah promises a joy that is akin to bringing in the harvest, the resulting feast, the security of the bounty of the harvest stored for the year ahead. The original listeners are a nation constantly under the oppression of Assyria. Crushing tribute must be played or else. And Isaiah promises a joy that is akin to dividing the spoil. Not just freedom from oppression, but the tables turn. There is victory 
And now they divide the spoil, all that is stolen returned, and more. This is a joy like none other. A joy that is far beyond anything that we could possibly imagine. Does it stir up within us a yearning? Oh, I want this joy. How can I lay a hold of this joy? Well, Isaiah tells us, on the heels of this promise come three statements. All that begin with the word for. Isaiah is saying, here is how we can have joy for, for, for. Verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. French philosopher Blaise Pascal said that this universal thirst for joy that we in vain seek to fill from all of our surroundings is an infinite abyss that can only be filled by an infinite and immutable object. That is to say that it can only be filled by God. And that is what Isaiah is saying. God increases our joy by giving us himself in Jesus. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and he shall be called, meaning we can then know him as wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. We can know him as wonderful counselor, the one who perfectly understands us. In her book, Creator Chaos, Dorothy Sayers puts it this way. The incarnation means that God himself has gone through the whole of human experience. From the trivial irritations of family life, the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money, to the worst horrors of pain, humiliation, despair, defeat, and death. He was born in poverty and suffered infinite pain all for us and thought it well worth his while. Because he has gone through every human experience, he is in love able to support, uphold, and walk with us in it. He is wonderful counselor. He is mighty God, a word that meant hero or champion. Jesus fights for us. He takes on overwhelming odds for us. And in his death and resurrection, he destroys the powers of sin and death and vanquishes all that stands against us. He is wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father. And Jesus, God, comes to initiate relationship, to draw us into a new family, to adopt us as children so that we might come call upon him as father. He is wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. The one who comes brings shalom, absolute wholeness and flourishing, prosperity where there's poverty, health where there's disease, life where there's death, reconciliation where there's discord. And Jesus comes to inaugurate that kingdom and will come again to bring it to its consummation. The infinite abyss of our longing for joy can only be filled by an infinite and immutable object. That is to say, only by God. And God gives himself to us in Jesus, going to infinite lengths to make himself known 
as wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, does that mean that no matter what circumstances we face, we can have joy because we know God? That even the worst of circumstances will be like rainbows, butterflies, and bunny rabbits? No. No. Because the joy that Isaiah promises is not just found in knowing God, as wonderful as that is. The joy is located in a future hope. You see, the first two statements in verses 4 and 5, the four statements that answer how we can have this joy, reveal a future where every wrong is righted, every evil undone, every pain healed, all things brought into their proper place in a messianic kingdom, a kingdom of beauty, joy, peace, righteousness, and justice. And having our joy located in that future reality, even while possessing the joy of knowing God, will in some ways make our present circumstances more grievous. How? Well, I think of Jesus here. He's at the grave of his friend Lazarus, and he's weeping. And at some level, it's utterly ridiculous that he should be weeping because he knows that in just a few moments, he will call Lazarus from the grave and restore him to his family. Why does he take the time to weep? Because in some ways, his grief is actually deeper than the other mourners. Sure, they're grieving the loss of a brother, a friend, grieving the loss of his friendship, his presence, grieving the years ahead where they will not have him with them. And Jesus is grieving all of that and the reality that death is a foreign invader. Death, the result of sin that is infecting his good creation. Death, an enemy that nothing less than his atoning death will be necessary to deal with to bring about a new future. You see, when a person who has located their joy in that future hope encounters circumstances that do not bear witness to that reality, there is deep grief. If Jesus is king over all things, if his resurrection is the first fruits of a new creation, then this should not be. It is an affront to that future kingdom. Having our joy located in that future hope means we will grieve our present circumstances in some ways more deeply and differently than others. But having our joy rooted in that future hope will also make our present circumstances endurable, less likely to pull us under. For we grieve with hope, a certain hope that he is returning to make all things new. I think one of the things that allows our current circumstances to erode our joy is that we root our joy in our current circumstances and not in that future hope. A number of years ago, I heard an illustration that put it this way. So imagine a young child, a toddler, who gets a beautiful new toy under the Christmas tree. 
All Christmas Day, she's playing with it, enjoying it. There's delight. And then all of a sudden, she breaks it. There's tears, there's agony, there's trauma. And then one of the the little girl's parents, trying to console her, said, don't don't worry. Great Aunt Lucy is, is coming to dinner tonight, and she wants to give you your inheritance while she's still alive, and she's coming with a check for $10 million. Now, what's that young child, that toddler, likely to do? Well, most likely, they're going to continue to cry and to weep until that toy is either fixed or replaced because they have no comprehension of what such an inheritance actually means. In the same way, we often have our joy located in our present circumstances because we fail to realize what such a hope, a future hope in Jesus actually means and how locating our joy in that will help us to endure our present circumstances, not allowing them to pull us under. So how might we grow this joy, increase it, cultivate it, apprehend it in the face of our current circumstances? Well, Isaiah helps us here. In verse 3, he moves from God's activity in giving us joy to our participation in it. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you. You have increased its joy. That's God's activity. They rejoice before you. That is our participation. Joy is increased, grow, and cultivated as we rejoice, as we praise, as we worship. It's C.S. Lewis who I think really helps us out here again. As he began to explore the Christian faith, one of the things he really struggled with was the biblical picture of a God who commands that we worship, that we praise him. He said, I know people who like to be praised with others. I'm sure all of us do. No one likes them. How stuck up this God must be to command over and over again that we praise him, that we worship him. Later in life, he wrote a book on the Psalms. And in it, he said this. When I thought that way about a God who commands worship, I was missing the most obvious fact about praise. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise unless shyness or the fear of boring others is deliberately brought in to check it. In other words, whenever you enjoy something, you have to praise it, right? When we enjoy a book, we praise the author. When we enjoy a meal, we praise the restaurant. When we enjoy a film, we praise the actors, the directors. We praise what we enjoy not only to express that joy— but because it increases that joy. Our delight in something is incomplete until that joy is expressed. And our joy becomes diminished when we feel we can't talk about it. So how do you increase, grow, cultivate your joy? Look to him. Look to Jesus. In him you can know God as wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Look to him. 
Look to Jesus. Look to the future hope you have in him that he is coming again to make everything new. And let your enjoyment of those realities bubble over into praise. Rejoice before him. And this joy will grow. It'll be cultivated deep down within your heart. In the words of the Isaac Watts carol that we will sing in just a moment, joy to the world. The Lord is come. Let us receive our King. Let us reflect on the wonders of his love. Let us receive the flow of blessings of curse of death and sin being broken. Let us receive his future reign, for that is joy to the world. Amen. You've just listened to a podcast from Little Trinity Church in Toronto. Please check out our website at www.littletrinity.org to find out more about our ministries and services.